right. Well, how many of you have ever committed to something and kind of agreed to it and only really found out later what you had committed to? Anybody? Yeah, okay, right? Like for better or for worse, that's a play on words, right? Because, you know, sometimes what we commit to, it's better than we thought it would be. Other times, it's not what we thought it would be. Uh, You know, interestingly enough, that better or worse language brought marriages to mind. As a pastor, I get the uh, privilege of uniting couples together in marriage, and preceding that, I get to do premarital counseling with them. And I often spend time talking to them about this shift that takes place between when they say I do on this stage and when they get home from the, the honeymoon. Because leading up to that I do, there's all kinds of desires that we're just certain this person is going to meet, and that's why we're going to get married with them. And within that week or so of the honeymoon, and we come home from the honeymoon, every one of those desires turns to an expectation, doesn't it? And instead of starting every day at 100, we start every day at zero, and we got to work our way up. And so we got to be mindful of this and aware of this, and marriage is just one example. Maybe you think about committing to something and only finding out later what you're really agreeing to. Things like having children. You expect it to be a certain way, and you think it's going to be this, and then reality sets in, and maybe reality is a little different, sometimes for better and sometimes for worse. Maybe going into business or taking a new job or a promotion. You, you say, this is what I'm going to do, and you agree to it based on the facts that you have at the time, and then you get into that new community or that new position or that new business, and it looks a little different than you had expected. This works on smaller things, too, like getting a pet. You know, you see that furry little bundle of joy in the pet store, and you think, how could anything possibly go wrong? This is so wonderful. Everything will be better if I have this. And then within a few days, you realize what you've committed to. Uh, Maybe you have kids and they want to do a sporting event or an activity or something. You think, oh, that can't be too bad, you know, and travel every now and then on the weekend, and it turns into something far more than you expected. How many of you, this will date me a little bit, but how many of you did the Columbia House CD Club? Okay, a few hands going way up. You think, how could this be wrong? We get six CDs on the front end? Well, I'm going to probably buy a CD every now and then anyway, so this is no big deal. And then next thing you know, it's like you have to buy a CD for life, every month for life, for the rest of your life. I just recently got out of my, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. For those of you that are in the Gen Z, there used to be CDs. That's how we had music, and you had to put the CD into a CD player. You didn't just have it on demand to stream on every device that you own. Maybe an HOA board or a co-op. I'm, I'm, most of these things tend to have more on the worse side than the better side. But I want to think about our faith for a moment. Because I think it's possible that sometimes we say yes to all the benefits on the front end. We agree, this is great. Everything's going to be perfect as soon as I say yes to this presentation of the gospel, or I agree intellectually with what is being shared, that makes sense, and so I'm going to say yes, and I'm going to put my faith in Jesus. And then we maybe had a misunderstanding. We thought everything was going to be up and to the right in every part of our life as soon as we just believed in Jesus, that maybe that's how it was presented. Maybe there was a presentation of the prosperity gospel. We didn't fully understand everything that was the rest of the story, so to speak. Or 
a religion of needs was presented to us, where you have these needs in your life. And religion says if you do more, you'll get more. And so if you do more for God, he'll do more for you. Sometimes that's how it's presented. And people get a commitment that they make to something, and it turns out to be very different. I think even on the positive side, this is true with our faith. Sometimes we say yes to Jesus, and we have no idea how good it can be to put all of our hope, all of our faith, all of our trust in him. We have no good, what, no idea what joy is available for those who hope in the name of the Lord. As a pastor, sometimes I see this play out in a mindset that we wouldn't articulate intentionally, but it's a prayer or a rationale that goes something like, God, I really need blank. And if I have to follow Jesus to get that, then I'll follow Jesus to get that. And people say yes to Jesus for something instead of saying yes to Jesus no matter what and committing to keep saying yes to Jesus no matter what. And I think if we're honest, most of us started here at some degree. Maybe somebody scared the hell out of us, literally, and we thought, I don't want to be there forever. And so we said, yes, I will accept Jesus so that I don't have to go to hell. Or maybe it was some other presentation of the gospel, and we weren't 100% sure what we were saying yes to. And while that's not a terrible place to start, it's a terrible place to stop. To merely say, okay, I'm just going to believe in Jesus enough so that I don't have negative consequences in my life. That is not the rich and satisfying life that Jesus desires for us to have, that he came for us to have. He said, I came, that you may have life and have it abundantly, that you may have a rich and satisfying life. And that goes way beyond just agreeing to some presentation of the gospel. That goes into discipleship, into holiness, into learning to really trust God deeply with every area of our lives. That rich and satisfying life comes with lordship, when Jesus is our Lord. Tim Keller has said, when you come to Christ, you must drop your conditions. You have to give up the right to say, I will obey you if, or I will do this if. As soon as you say, I will obey you if, to Jesus, that's not obedience at all. You're saying, you are my advisor, not my Lord. I'll be happy to take your recommendations. I might even do some of them. No, you must give up the right to self-determination. Self-denial is an act of rebellion against our late modern culture of self-assertion. But that is what we are called to. Nothing less. That reminded me of words that echoed in my own faith journey from my pastor, the one who led me to the Lord, the one who called me into ministry, John Spear in Casper, Wyoming, would say often, Jesus is either Lord of all or he isn't Lord at all. Because you see, that's how lordship works. There's no carve-outs. And too often we say, well, I want you to be Lord over my eternal destiny, but I'm not so sure I want you to be Lord over my life here and now. And yet that's not how lordship works. That's not an option that's been given to us. And so this Lordship idea is an initial commitment, and then it is a process that follows the initial commitment. And this last time through the Gospel of John, this past fall, 
I noticed something really profound with the 12 disciples and others, and then as I've read other Gospels, I've seen it show up there as well. It's this reality that the disciples and others, they believed in Jesus. They said yes to Jesus, and they began following Jesus, but they clearly misunderstood key elements of what he was here to do, key elements of the kingdom of God, key elements of his big plan. And they didn't seem to believe Jesus at first. They believed in him, but they didn't believe him. They didn't believe him at key points, critical points, maybe even until after the resurrection. How many times is he telling them, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to die, and I'm going to be resurrected, and I'm going to rise from the dead, and they follow that by an argument over which one of them is the greatest. Clearly, they missed something. And so, we have a new series titled, Believing Jesus really focusing on believing him, taking him at his word, believing that his way is the best way. And so my encouragement to you is to not simply settle for merely believing in Jesus and fail to really, truly, deeply believe Jesus. Believe that his way is best and to go all in holding nothing back. To truly believe that following him leads us to our best life here and now. That it wasn't just for some point in time in the past, but that believing Jesus not only brings us our best life, that he really has our best interest in mind, but that it also expands his kingdom and brings him glory. And those are our primary purposes as followers of Christ. And so we're going to move through the Gospel of John in this series. We're not necessarily going to do every single chapter, but we are going to move chronologic through, chronologically through the Gospel of John. So if you want to open up to page 1645 in our Bibles that are in the seats in front of you, if you have your own Bible, open up to John chapter 1. And as you get there, I want to sort of stress the importance of belief in John's Gospel. The word believe or belief, some form or fashion, shows up 85 times in this gospel. And it's in all but three chapters. So I would encourage you to read the gospel of John and maybe circle believe or believing or put faith in every time you see it. And you will see that this was clearly John's purpose. It's in the general prologue that we're going to look at this morning, and we find it at the very end. He makes this purpose statement after the resurrection. He said, if everything was written, there wouldn't be enough books in the world to contain it all. If everything Jesus did was written, but these things are written that you may believe. That was John's purpose. And so that's going to be our purpose as we walk through this leading up to Easter, that we would learn to believe Jesus deeply, truly, purely. And today we're going to walk through the introduction and Jesus' first miracle and let me begin by just reading these first 14 verses of John chapter 1. If you want to just sit back and listen to this, that's great. If you want to follow along, or it'll be on the screen behind me. Um, but just listen to these words. I'll break it up every now and then just to explain what's going on, because there's some pronouns, and there's, some, there's two Johns in the picture, and it's good to make sure we know who we're talking about at each time. So in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. And so this is talking about Jesus. Jesus the Word made flesh. 
And it's saying Jesus and God are one. They're not two separate entities. This is, these are two parts of the Trinity. They're both God. Jesus is God and the Father is God. Now verse 4, in him was life and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. So Jesus is not only the word, he's also the light. And he will declare in the gospel of John that he is the light of the world. Now it switches gears a little bit. It says, there came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all men might believe. There's that purpose statement. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light, the true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. So this is John the baptizer that is being mentioned here in verses 5 and 6 and 7. I'm sorry, 6, 7, and 8. It's not talking about the John that wrote the gospel. This is where it gets confusing for some people sometimes because there's a different John. There's a John that's writing this down who's one of the sons of Zebedee, one of the 12 disciples. But he's talking about John the baptizer, the one who came to pave the way for Jesus, to point people to him so that they might believe. Now picking up in verse 10, he, now we're talking about Jesus, was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. So he came to the whole world, but the world didn't recognize him. He even came to the people of God, the Jews, and they did not receive him. Yet, verse 12, to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. He brought salvation. He brought this born-again experience that he'll be talking with Nicodemus about in a couple of chapters. He came to bring people into the family of God, into a new inheritance. If you're a son of God, a daughter of God, if you're a child of God, then that means you're in line for the divine inheritance that is marked out for you. All of this was accomplished through Jesus. And so belief really matters. We see that in verse 12. To all who received him... To those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That word belief means to rely upon, cling to, trust in. It's not just intellectual assent. It goes way beyond that. And that belief changes everything. That belief changes our destiny. That belief changes our inheritance. That belief can rebirth a new life in us. And so let's pause here. I'm going to give you the bottom line early, and I'm going to give it to you often today. So don't get ready. Don't start packing up your things. I know the bottom line's been coming late most recently, but the bottom line today is that believing in Jesus is just the beginning. Now, I've said this before, but like when I say something like that, if you should feel like, ooh, that's good, you can say amen. It's okay. There's no prohibitions against that. You can even just kind of mm, do one of the church moves. Mms are fine at Linwood. There's no problem with that. When I say believing in Jesus is just the beginning, that's good news. That's good news. That's just the beginning. Like, yes, you're now a child of God. Yes, you have heaven to look forward to. You have an eternal destiny. You have an inheritance. But that's just the beginning. There's so much more. There's so much more. 
And so I want to encourage you to flip over now to John chapter 2. We'll come back. We, we won't just leave you hanging. But come look at John chapter 2 with me. You see, in John chapter 2, Jesus does his first miracle. And so he's called a few of the disciples. They go to a wedding in Cana, which is in Galilee, so it's not too far away. He's known to many of the people there. His mother is involved in some way. And if you know the story, uh, early in, way too early in the wedding festival, they run out of wine. And that's a big deal. It's going to be, you know, kind of socially very inconvenient for the family that's putting on uh, the wedding. And Jesus' mom's like, well, Jesus is here. I wonder if he could fix this problem for them. And so he turns like hundreds of gallons of water into wine. And the report from sort of the master of ceremonies is that this is the best wine he's ever tasted. And he says, you know, most of the time, People give you the good stuff first, and then when you can't tell the difference, they bring out the not-so-good wine. And he's like, you've saved the best for last, and this is what God's done for us. He saved the best for last. It's not just this flash in the pan when you come to him in salvation, and then you're on your own, or you've got to kind of work your way through it for the rest of your life. No, the best is always yet to come. And so when we pick up there in verse 11... John reports, autobiographically, mind you, that this, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed in Cana of Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. We're told the disciples put their faith in him. They believe in him. Some of them had already started following, but maybe they were sort of hedging their bets. Let's see how this goes. Let's see if he really is the Messiah. And now... His glory is revealed, and that glory being revealed leads to their belief. But that's not the end of the story, is it? We're just in John chapter 2. There's 19 more chapters just in John's gospel. Because believing in Jesus is just the beginning. And so after this, after this first miracle and the disciples put their faith in him, he goes to Jerusalem he cleanses the temple. He drives out the money changers, the people that were trying to profit from this religion. There was a lot of people that realized, you know, people, they're going to have to bring sacrifices if they're going to be right with God. That was the teaching at the time. And so they're going to have to sell, you know, change their money from one foreign currency to the temple currency. They're going to have to buy uh, these sacrifices that they need to offer. We can mark them up and, and we can make a lot of money. And Jesus says, this is not the way it's supposed to be. My house, my father's house, is supposed to be called a house of prayer. And so obviously this draws a temple because this didn't happen on a regular basis, right? And so they're saying like, what's going on? Who are you and why are you doing this? And so that's where we pick up in verse 18 of chapter 2. The Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show to prove your authority to do all this? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. And listen to this. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Did you catch that? Again, this is still autobiographical for John. This, he was one of these disciples that he's talking about. He's reporting this from himself and for the disciples. And for the disciples, believing in Jesus or putting their faith in Jesus preceded fully believing and understanding Jesus and taking him at his word and believing 
deeply all of his teachings. They believed in him before they fully believed him. Do you see that? I think it's a key, key distinction. And I wonder, can anyone else relate to this? Or is it just me? Like, does anybody else relate to putting your faith in Jesus and still having questions, still having doubts, wrestling with unbelief at times because it sounds really good, but it's not reality in my life yet? Am I the only one that's had that experience? The only one that has struggled with that or wrestled with that, maybe in the face of an unanswered prayer? Maybe in the face of questioning God or feeling like he's absent or distant? And so I wonder, when did you put your faith in Jesus? And did you know at that point that believing in Jesus is just the beginning? Was it decades ago? Was it years ago? Was it a few weeks or months ago? For some, maybe it was today. Maybe you heard something, you understood something, the scales fell from your eyes, the, the Spirit illuminated something, and you said, yes, this is true, I believe it. And so I wonder, second question, how has your faith and your belief grown since then? Can you chart big seasons of growth, maybe plateaus, maybe some seasons of decline in your faith? Have you ever settled for just believing in? Well, I believe in Jesus, so I'm fine. I really want to go and do this, even though I know it's in conflict with what God says is true. Are you believing Jesus more and more, or are you believing him yes and yet, less and less? Are you eagerly searching the scriptures to find out what he said so that you can believe what he said and apply it to your life? Or do you leave your Bible off to the side and say, well, I believe in Jesus, and I sure hope that's enough. I can tell you from my personal story, I grew up in and around church. Sunstrom boys, Sunstrom kids were in church. I just have me and my sister. There's no Sunstrom boys. But we were in church like 45, 50 times a year. We were, we were in church a lot. And I heard about Jesus a lot. And I believed in Jesus. But I was also what you might call morally flexible. <laughs> like, if I thought I could get away with it, I did. And most of the time, I got away with it. And so I think most people thought I was a better person than I was. <laughs> and then I had this moment of salvation at the age of 19 when I started attending a church where the whole Bible was opened up and taught passionately, and I just could not get enough of it. And I remember hearing, Jesus is either Lord of all or he isn't Lord at all. And the first time it kind of bothered me, and the second time it started messing with me. I'm like, he's not Lord of all. I can show you areas in my life where Jesus is not Lord. And I had to realize I'm not okay with that. And so I remember at the age of 19, kneeling at an altar and praying and saying, Jesus, I want you to be Lord of all, every area of my life. And that led to seasons of growth, seasons of leveling off, growing again, a few sort of detours. There were a couple of seasons that were really significant. Uh, was in a men's group for the first time. We did a study called The Search for Significance, and it identified all these areas that we put our faith and our trust or the things that we misbelieve about God and replace them with God's truth. And as I understood more and more, my faith, my belief in Jesus and my believing Jesus grew. And I started to take him at his word more and more, and we started to make changes in our lives. I was baptized. I began to serve in the church. 
And then I received a call to ministry. And I went to seminary. And I I learned more about what believing in Jesus entails. And I began to believe Jesus even more and more. I began teaching in my church. I began leading mission trips, going on mission trips, seeing how God was working in other parts of the world. I accepted my call to a first senior pastorate. And it was after that first senior pastorate and before I came here that I had the greatest crisis of my faith. When for a period, a season of life, I I felt like God was absent. I felt like the promises were not true. I had significant doubt and unbelief. I wrestled with this all the while I'm in ministry. All the while I'm leading classes, I'm preaching sermons, and I'm wrestling with God. And whether or not I can really believe Him, really trust Him. Unfortunately, when I reached the very bottom, there was a rebirth experience for me. There was a new identity in Christ. And I look back now and I see this mingling of believing in, accompanied with some unbelief, some doubts, learning more, and coming to a place where I believe Him 100%. I haven't, that hasn't been on the table for over seven years now of whether or not God is trustworthy, whether or not the word is true. So what about you? As I share my story, where does it intersect with yours? Where does it not? What about you in this mingling of belief and unbelief? Believing in versus really, truly believing. It sort of crystallized for me uh, recently. <laughs> it's a funny thing. My family and I, we do regular chiropractic. And so our chiropractor is literally right halfway between Linwood and our house. And so we meet together there on Monday afternoons at the end of the workday. I leave. Heather leaves about the same time. We all converge at the you know, Sunstrom 6 come in, and we kind of take over the office for a moment. And uh, this recently, a couple of weeks ago or maybe a month ago, um, I got there late. I got held up on my way out. I can't remember the exact circumstances. I think Heather and the boys were a little early too, which kind of magnified the gap, right? And uh, I remember as I kind of coasted in, right, as they were wrapping up, I made it into the chair and they were off doing their thing and the chiropractor said, you know, it was really, really cool to listen to Heather. One of the boys, I think it was one of the younger boys, asked, I wonder where dad is. And it was so cool to hear her just say, this is him telling me this, oh, he probably just got held up or somebody needed something or maybe he's on, you know, on a phone call out in the, in the car because there was one more thing that needed to be done. But he said it was so neat to listen to her fill in the gap with trust. And I love the way he said that, that there was a gap between expectation and reality. I was supposed to be there. Maybe it was a five-minute or ten-minute gap. But he said it was so cool to listen to her fill in the gap with trust. And I said, wow. That's what we need to learn to do with God, that we come to him with our expectations and we pray for certain things and maybe they happen and maybe they don't. But what we do with the gap really matters. Do we fill in the gap with trust and say, yet you are holy, O God, your way is perfect, you're working it out. You're going to work all things together for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. Do we fill in the gap with trust or do we fill in the gap gap with doubt? I wonder if he really listens. I wonder if he really hears. I wonder if he's really paying attention. I wonder, I wonder, I wonder. Did God really say is what the serpent said to Eve in the garden? Do we fill in the gap with doubt or do we fill in the gap with trust? 
And so that's a good question to ask yourself and sort of self-assess. Compared to a year ago, am I filling in those gaps with trust more and more or with doubt more and more? Or a decade ago, depending on how long you've been following him. And as I contemplated that, I was reminded of the Gaither Chorus. Maybe this has already come to mind for you. They said, the longer I serve him, the sweeter it grows. The more that I love him, more love he bestows. Is that your story? Is that your experience of God as you continually fill in the gaps with trust? At my lowest point, I had been filling in all the gaps with doubt, filling on all the gaps with unbelief. And wondering if God was really there, wondering if he really cared, wondering if he was really for me, or if I was just on my own in this struggle that I was facing. And so now I want to finish that prologue, those first 18 verses of the Gospel of John. If you want to turn back a page or two to John chapter 1, verse 14, we'll finish out this introduction. And here's how John sort of summarizes it. The Word became flesh. And made his dwelling among us. The message translation, Eugene Peterson says, he moved into the neighborhood. I love that. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Do you see that? Glory is connected to belief. Again, just like that first miracle in Cana, we've seen his glory. John, verse 15, testifies, this is John the baptizer, John the Baptist testifies concerning him. He cries out saying, this is he of whom I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. So it's connecting who John paved the way, that's Jesus. John is making that clear. And then he says this, from the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. He's talking about Jesus. Jesus has made God known perfectly, completely, fully. And so if you think about verse 14 for a second, remember the connection between glory and faith at Cana. And then we're told he came from the Father, full of grace and truth, brimming over with both grace and truth. Not just grace and not just truth, but full to the max of both grace and truth. Because you know what? We need both grace and truth. And if you just believe in Jesus and the grace side, and you leave out the truth and the holiness, and these things, these are things God wants, you for, wants for you. He wants you to have them. Not just grace, but grace and truth. We have to receive him. And as our worship team comes up, look then at verse 16 and 17. From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. Some translations say from his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. One blessing after another, grace upon grace. From the fullness of his grace, from his fullness, we receive grace Upon grace, not just the grace to believe and get our ticket punched to heaven, but grace to keep believing and to believe deeper and deeper and to fill in every gap in our life with God, with trust. Then he says, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. You could say the law was very heavy on truth and a little light on grace. You could make that statement. 
But I like how the ESV explains this. It says, the contrast is not that the Mosaic law was bad and Jesus is good. Rather, both the giving of the law and the coming of Jesus Christ mark decisive elements in the history of salvation. In the law, God graciously revealed his character and righteous requirements to the nation of Israel. Jesus, however, marked the final definitive revelation of God's grace and truth. And he did it for everyone. And so, we understand God most fully through both the law of Moses, that first covenant, and the grace and truth that we see in Jesus. He didn't pull any punches. He was full of grace. He was full of truth. And we need both because believing in Jesus is just the beginning. Believing in Jesus is just the beginning. So I want to know today, as we begin this series, do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe in him? Do you trust him as your Lord and Savior? Are we relying upon him for your salvation? Are you clinging to him in every season of life? Because if you don't, today can be the day of your salvation. Today can be the day when you say, oh, I understand it now. I want to receive him. I want to believe in him. I want to put my faith in him. I understand there's more to the story. Much more. And it's much better than we can even hope to imagine. But I also have a second question for you. Do you believe him? Do you believe him? Do you believe him when he speaks in red letters to you through the pages of Scripture? Do you believe that that's for you today and not just for the people 2,000 years ago in another culture? That the Word is living and active, that it is sharper than any two-edged sword, that it pierces to the dividing of soul and spirit? Do you believe Jesus and believe that he has your best interest in mind and believe that he's for you, he's with you? You can take him at his word. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for coming into the world and taking up residence among us. Help us, oh God, to not just believe in you, but to really believe you. And when this world throws us a curveball and things don't go like we planned, help us to fill that gap with trust. Help us to believe even when things aren't going the way we expected. Help us to grow in our belief, to trust you more and more. Oh, we love you, Lord. We speak your name and things change. And so we pray, God, that you would change our hearts and help us to grow in our faith. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.